I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by Duke University's Arete Initiative. This summer from July 9th to the 14th, they're going to be hosting the high school summer seminar on ethics, philosophy, and religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the idea's natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. This seminar is taught by several Duke University instructors and professors, and is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There is no fee associated with applying or attending, and those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. Students interested in applying should email John Rose at john.rose at duke.edu. That's J-O-H-N dot R-O-S-E at duke.edu. Applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th, 2019. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined for this conversation for this new series on Ralph Moody's Little Britches by Heidi White and Adam Andrews. Heidi, Adam, how's it going? Good. It's going great. Thanks for having us. Of course, yeah. So we are here, as I said, to talk about... We're starting a new book. We're going to talk about Ralph Moody's Little Britches with the subtitle, Father and I Were Ranchers. Um, this is a book that I have not read in years. I have not read it since I was a kid. And Heidi, you've never read it. And That's Adam, right. you probably are the most recent reader of it. You've probably read it the most. Adam, I'm going to turn to you first because of that. Did you read this as a, like, did you read this when you were a kid? And then did you read it again with your own children when they were kids? Or what's your history with Little Bridges? Never heard of it until a few years ago when we, it was suggested to us to include it in the uh, reading list for one of our online classes. And so read it for the first time. Then I was an adult and uh, was just taken by it. I think it's Mm. a glorious story. But no, I have no childhood experience with it at all. It's very easy for me to imagine, though, my, my childhood self reading it and, and having it be one of my favorites. It's got the, the kind of atmosphere that when I was a young reader, I was always looking for. So mm. um, yeah, I think it's great. Okay, hold that thought because I want to come back to this uh, comment about, about atmosphere. Um, Heidi, so this is your first time. Did yes. You, is this the kind of book you would have read that you would have been into the atmosphere as well when you were a kid or was it, did you, were you more into, I don't know, dare I say girls books or something? I want to say, yes, I would have loved this book as a child, but no, I would not have loved this book as a child. (laughs) So I, you know, one of the reasons I've never read this book before, it's on all of the reading lists. You know, if you are a homeschool mom, this book is on the reading list that you have paid money for. Sarah McKenzie's, it's on all of them. It's on Ambleside. So, um, but I always just skipped over it because it was a Western and I thought a boy book and neither of those are my favorite genre, but I have really, I've really loved it so far. 
So, Adam, do you think we should force her to unpack these thoughts about boy books and <laughs> westerns? I mean, should we start with a little mini therapy session here, or should we just skip over that? Dave is you know, getting his revenge on uh, me for all of the therapy sessions I have put on him. I so. actually, I actually um, <laughs> agree with that take on this book because when I at reading it as, as an adult, I was really struck by the similarities in. Uh, in a couple different ways to Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie books. You're, you are uh, jumping and, right to my very first topic of conversation. Oh, so, I'm sorry. I don't no, mean no, to no, steal no. your thunder. No, no. Well, I know I'm that. I'm never worried about that. <laughs> it's like, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no that's, well, I, I, my point was this is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that it's, it's, uh, you could call it a kind of a boy's version of the same sort of, uh, of literary effort. Hmm. as uh, Wilder's books. And that there's an atmosphere there that maybe is, as a boy myself, I would have, I would have really loved it for the same reason, I think, that, um, that a lot of kids love Little House on the Prairie. It's a, there's kind of a fond looking back to a childhood that was formative and that was powerful. And the relationships that were built there are still very, very important to the author. And there's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's a comfortable, tone about it that's hmm. there's an element of security that you get from reading it uh, despite the fact that difficulties are going to arise and the characters are going to have to fight with those things um, it, it's it's a safe story in ways that I think would have really entranced me as a young reader hmm. that's an interesting interesting word a safe story um, hold on to that thought because I want to I want to I think I want to understand a little bit more about what you're saying there, but let's let's talk about the comparison between Little House in the Prairie and Little Bridges. Um, besides the fact that they both begin with the word "little," um, I I was thinking about that a lot when I was reading, and I, I was I was trying to figure out if if it seems like well, I don't want to necessarily say that Ralph Moody was trying to do something specific, but do you think that um, does it seem to you like? it's a comparison to Little House on the Prairie because it's meant to be a comparison to Little House on the Prairie? Or is it because there's something larger going on thematically in terms of its sort of place within American literature? Do, do, do you see the distinction I'm kind of trying to draw out? I'm sort of. Go at it one more time. I think I, I, think I know what you're saying, but I want to hear you put it again. Okay, so I'll just kind of... Let me, let me offer you some context for these thoughts. So as I'm reading, I'm thinking, well, there's all these comparisons between, you know... Uh, Ralph Moody's, you know, his his mother. There's a lot of comparisons between her and Carolyn Ingalls, right? This is, you know, Ma from Little House on the Prairie. And even in terms of the, you know, we're going to be gentlemen, we're going to be ladies, all these different things that she's kind of, you know, preoccupied with. There's also the comparison between Pa and the father in this book. You know, they're very similar sort of um, noble characters, hardworking. Everyone around them seems to take them as reliable. All these, there's very specific similarities. You have our narrator, our voice being sort of um, mischievous and seeking freedom and, you know, all these different things that go into that. So does it seem like, given all those things to you, that Ralph Moody is after, he, like that there is a direct comparison to be made there um, in terms of this is a response to Little House in the Prairie or something like that? Or is it simply that these things are archetypal things within American literature? I'd probably go, and I don't know what you think about that, Heidi, but I'd probably go with the latter explanation that uh, one of the things we do is when we reach a certain age is begin to look back on our childhoods and 
you know, sort of glorify the things that were that were good. And you know, if if our childhoods were happy and if the relationships that characterized them were strong, we tend to see even the difficulties in light of the positive experiences that we that we come from. And I, it might be a human urge to look back and and try and cap encapsulate uh, childhood and tell our story in such a way that it's that it's um, it does justice to the 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 heritage that we have or the you know the feeling of honor that we owe to our ancestors and that kind of thing. Maybe that Ralph Moody and and Laura Ingalls Wilder are participating in the same universal urge. I mean, I, it's interesting. One of my favorite books that I did read when I was a kid was the series um, by John D. Fitzgerald called The Great Brain. I don't know if you guys are familiar mm-hmm. with those books. Yes. I just devoured those. And they're, they're a little bit more lighthearted than Little Britches. And, um, and you know, their comedy as much as, as nostalgic, um, uh, you know, hymn of praise to the father and that kind of thing. But, but there is that same impulse there. Um, to look back on a childhood that was that was filled with activity and was filled with with memorable experiences and put it together in a story and say, "Look where I came from isn 't this great and so I see it not only in Wilder and Moody but also in other places as well, which makes me wonder if that 's just what it 's what people do and if they have to be happen to be authors at the same time, they go to write a book mm-hmm. yeah, and to piggyback on that i i I think one of the reason why the comparison between the two novels, between Little Britches, Little House on the Prairie, and that particular genre, as Adam was addressing, is uh, so obvious to us, and we're we're paying attention to all these similarities, uh, the influence of hard work um, and being outdoors, the strong parental guidance, uh, what it means to be a good neighbor, kind of the the contemplation of the otherness of sharing the land with the Native Americans, those, those, uh, those kinds of things where we are seeing that so glaringly clearly because there's a lot of comparisons between the two. They're very alike. And also because it's very different from the kind of novels that uh, people write nowadays about their childhood, you know, more of like the expose and, and, and the <laughs> suffering that yeah. I experienced yeah. as a child and, you know, how my parents failed me and how, you know, I never saw anything green until I, you know, all those, all, all those kinds of those, that is the way that people tend to write about their lives now, but that has not always been the American ethos as you pointed out, David. And so I think it's really important for our kids, for our families, for us to know that, um, that the denigration of the American family in literature is new, that this has been the way that people were writing about what it means to grow up in, in, in the United States, uh, that there was a celebration and an honor to that. That's an, that's an interesting thesis. <laughs> um, I think, I, I mean, can I take issue with it slightly? Please. So, I mean, as you know, we've talked about this. I'm working on, on a talk that I'm going to be giving this spring um, a couple times. This is going to be a little preview of just some of the things I'm going to be talking about possibly in Cincinnati, if anybody's coming to that conference there. Um, but I, I don't necessarily agree totally that that this is the way family life was described or portrayed universally. I think that this is still, even in that time, was still an outlier in terms of, depending on what you mean, I think that there was still a respect at the time for this sort of story. But wouldn't you say that 
I mean, you look at like the what's the what are the greatest stories of you know young adult stories in American literature? They're all about orphans and families who are broken and people have died, and it's about broken, split up families. I mean, would you disagree with that? I wouldn't disagree with that. I would say that children's literature is different, tends to be different during this this time, maybe. Um, go on. I mean, go, you're definitely like Faulkner is going to write a very different novel from Mark <laughs> Ingalls Wilder, for example, right? But it's intended for a different yeah. audience. Yeah, 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 sure. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, look at like, are, are we saying that like, say, Tom Sawyer then, for example, or, Mar- or Huckleberry Finn or not, is not young at all or geared towards children or whatever exclusively? I mean, obviously that's not true, but... Right. <clears throat> Tom Sawyer does seem to be more of a children's novel than Huckleberry Finn. Certainly. I think if we if if we um, look at this story as a uh, maybe not as a, a member of a class or a member right. of a of a genre, but just as a as an individual effort by a particular author, um, it I think it might be more helpful to see it as that as representative of an urge or or of a um, of a human characteristic to look back on childhood and go to print with your with your recollections and maybe there's yeah. a spectrum of those kind of literary responses to childhood and to the past and ralph moody and laura ingalls wilder might belong towards one end of the spectrum right maybe, maybe there's some darker examples down towards the other end but right. maybe they, maybe it's more useful to see them as belonging to the same to the same genre as as each other right i like that idea of urges um i think that that's an important and the and the spectrum. And I'll give another example of it without getting too far off track. Reese, my my daughter loves like her mother before her, uh, loves the Anne of Green Gables series. Uh, and her favorite, as was mine at her age, she's 10, uh, is Rilla of Ingleside, which is the last one in the series. It's about Anne's youngest daughter and her coming of age during World War One. Um, and it's a very patriotic, very romantic novel. And completely unique from most, I don't want to say most, because again, we're talking about that spectrum, from a lot of World War I memoir literature. It kind of has this like very romantic cast on the war. Mm-hmm. And the, the young men going out, the boys going out to battle and fighting for liberty and protecting the women at home who have these stout hearts and they hold down the fort, right? Versus a lot of the other World War I literature, which is focuses on kind of the darkness and what was lost. Like, you know, Lucy Maud Montgomery is going to write a very, very different novel about World War I than Ernest Hemingway. Right. So, and, but they're both doing the same thing, trying to make sense of their lives, trying to make sense of the times that they live in through a different set of glasses and, and, and both have provided very important contribution to literature that we all need to pay attention to. Um, so I like the idea of urges in describing that is the urge to kind of come to terms with the ideal or is it to to, to shine a light on what's broken about the world in their time. And those are both valid, but very different. Yeah. I, I think the, um, it, the specific urge that's operating in this book, um, and David, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you again. I'm no, sorry. No, no, no. In if I am. Hey, I but can adjust. From, what's that? I said, I can adjust if you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the first sentence of the novel um, betrays what the what the artistic or human urge is here. He Mm -hmm. says, um, I never really knew father very well, 
till we moved to the ranch on the Fort Logan Morrison Road, not far from Denver. Mm. And if you, as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, why would you say it that way? Why would you begin the whole novel with this particular sentence, if not to declare at the outset that this is going to be a story about me getting to know the man that my father was? And it's going to be a story about him and his father from the very beginning. And if that's not a universal urge, I don't know what is. Right. Um, to, to know who it is that you came from, to know who, you know, what tree your apple fell down next to and <laughs> figure out who that, who that inscrutable man was as you grew up. Uh, that's as, that's as got to be as universal an urge as there is. Hmm. Right. I, uh, I was fascinated by that, that first line this time because I, it seems like there's so much more going on there than even is on the surface. Um, because then there, cause that line about that was just after my eighth birthday. It, it seems like t- to me, I, I wonder what he means, I guess is what I'll say, but I never really knew him very well. Did he mean that? <clears throat> well, I'll just put it this way. It introduces all kinds of questions and mysteries to the story right off the bat as kind of, which is kind of what you're saying. But does he, for example, does he not know him because his father was withdrawn and mysterious and didn't, reveal much of himself did it did he not know him very well because he was not astute enough did he not but then he says he's eight years old so then that kind of implies that maybe it's once he turned eight years old he began to know his father better and thus it becomes a sort of you know coming of age story where they where this boy is now capable of knowing his father in a way that he never was before and that the circumstances that are about to happen throw them together so i love the kind of various questions um that that doubt that those one and a half sentences there throw at us right from the very beginning. I think that there's yeah. a lot of skill there. There is. I think so too. And I think the whole paragraph actually continues what you're saying. Uh, he says, when we lived in East Rochester, New Hampshire, we, he worked in the woolen mill, but it wasn't good for his lungs. He was sick in bed the winter before we moved. The one after Hal was a year old. And he doesn't get any more specific than that. Yeah, You can imagine yeah. an eight-year-old not really knowing the medical uh, situation, but that in the in the first handful of chapters, he doesn't get more specific than that. It's still kind of a question, kind of a mystery. What is it that's the matter with him? Mm-hmm. And so he he comes to to he comes to to start to know his father uh, in his weakness as well as his strength, kind of piecemeal as the story goes on. And so it it's really kind of beautiful the story that he's telling about how his his father's nature and the relationship they're going to have sort of unfolds and reveals itself uh, step by step as the story goes along. Do you think that this book belongs just kind of in the tradition of the buildings Roman tradition? I mean, I know that's not exactly how you're supposed to pronounce that word if you're speaking in actual German accent, but um, the sort of... Um, you know, just a traditional novel of formation, coming of age stories. Would you say that it fits neatly into that? What do you think, Heidi? Well, I haven't read the whole book yet. So I think that it has elements of that for sure. Um, But because this is a real story, um, a memoir, it also has, um, I think, it doesn't, it, it really doesn't fit exactly. It has, I think, elements of multiple kinds of genre, including memoir and then the traditional American Western. And it has a very American ethos to it. And so the contemplations are less, are more action oriented, land oriented, um, 
and discovery oriented than I think a traditional coming of age story from what I've read so far. Yeah, I'm not sure how uh, how much initiative the protagonist takes in that process. I mean, he's right. I think he's we've got him young enough that um, he's an observer and uh, he's acted upon by the events and the grown-ups around him. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, my sense is that he's, if you're trying to put it the, the story into a category, in the in a buildings roman, I'd like to see, I, I expect to see a character who's who's um, more self consciously after something. Although that's not necessarily true all the time, but I, this seems to me that the protagonist is a little bit more passive. And maybe a little bit too beloved by those around him as well. <laughs> Quite <Yeah>. alone enough. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not enough alienation here. Yes. <laughs> huh. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Do you do you um do you take well as we're reading through these first six chapters? I guess one of the big questions I had is what are we supposed to take as the stakes of the story? Um, because I was wondering if perhaps it just sort of floats along, floats along too much as a series of vignettes, um, as opposed to are the stakes clearly laid out enough? Um, like, do we have enough tension for this to be, you know, to fit into some of the like the Western archetypes and some of the things mm-hmm. that it's sort of dancing around? What do you think of that, Heidi? That's a great question, and I think that I've 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 been wondering that same thing. So I've I've read a little bit past what we were assigned to read this week, but not too much. And so I'm flying blind a little bit in answering this question. Uh, But I will say that one thing I think that um, that, that it captures so well in in the writing of this story so far is uh, the thinking of a child. Uh, An eight-year-old doesn't always know what's at stake. Right. As an adult, we're reading this thinking, wow, they just moved out to this ranch. It wasn't what they thought. They don't have their they're learning as they go. This isn't, I mean, this 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 is not paw from from Little House on the Prairie. There are some things that this man does not know how to do yet. Um mm-hmm. and so <laughs> that is um the like there's there's kind of this. I like this, by the way, I'm saying this in in a praising kind of way. Uh, There's kind of this sense of things left unsaid that even that that the reader doesn't quite know what's at stake. You can tell there's bigger stakes than Ralph himself is aware of, but we're not exactly sure what yet. And I like that feeling, that this sense of not quite impending doom, it's not really that, but there still is a sense of mystery and that there's something that the grownups are talking about that he doesn't quite know yet while he's thinking about wearing his overalls and getting on the horse and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we do get a hint of it mm-hmm. at the end of chapter six of the, the section that we're talking about today that I think um, takes the story from what I would call exposition where the author's just kind of setting the stage and putting the characters in place and, and introducing you to them and a more formal rising action section where there's a there's an underlying conflict that's going to drive the rest of the story forward and it's right there at the end of chapter six where um father stood looking looking down at his foot on the hub of the buckboard for all of two minutes mm-hmm. then he looked up at fred and his voice was real quiet when he said what are you telling me fred haven't i got any water mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and we find out just right here at the end of the section that probably not. Okay, and, so I have to interject here and say I live in Colorado. 
And I didn't know the story was about Colorado until I started reading chapter one, which has Colorado in the title. So I figured it out. Um, (laughs) I am a close reader. (laughs) Uh, But farming in Colorado is so hard to do. And so even on that first page, when cousin Phil is telling them, all you got to do is you take your seed and you throw it out into the wind and everything grows in the spring. I'm thinking they are being taken for a ride because this is my land. And I know what it's like to farm. I don't farm. I do raise tomatoes in a pot on my porch. (laughs) It's hard. I am not a farmer, Um, but I, I do know how hard it is to grow crops here. And so this, I kept waiting for the water thing to come up, to be honest with you. And when it came, I thought, okay, so this is this is happening. Um, but I'm loving the connection with the land, which is my land. Like I, I that adds another layer of engagement for me. But there's yeah. not, a, and I don't read Western, so I don't read a ton about Colorado novels. I'm so I'm excited about that. <laughs> You know, it's fun. Well, you, you were asking a minute ago that, that uh, it, does the story just kind of bop along for a few chapters yeah, without really yeah. getting it? And I, I think that um, uh, a struggle over water rights makes it as thoroughly conflict-laden a Western as has ever been delivered. So I, right. I, think, I think the idea of giving the author a minute to you know, construct his, his exposition is what we're looking at here in the first handful of chapters, then that the conflict is coming. Yeah. I love, I love the way he, as he leads up to that, he, he builds that exposition through the longings of this kid, the, year, the yearnings. Because for example, you can tell how much he wants to be loved by the tough boys, right? He wants to be uh-huh. respected by them. So he learns to ride this donkey and they tie his feet and he gets in fights. And so there's all these, these um, characterized, these, these scenes that are giving us characterization and, and um, get it, helping us get to know him and you know, the things that he wants before we get all this other stuff. And by doing that, he's introducing us to all these themes related to the place. He's asking us questions of like masculinity and, and um, survival and you know, the, 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 sto- the storm coming and they have to crawl out. You know, there's stories of, I mean, there's themes of toughness. And so he introduces all these pretty Western Americana, you know, well, pretty universal themes, frankly, before he gives us the specific sort of plot tension of the water mm-hmm. rights that drives some of the, mm-hmm. the rest of the narrative. So I think that that's really, really nicely done as well. I was, I was laughing because um, if you look this book up on Wikipedia, I usually look for like publication dates and stuff like that. If you're wondering, this book was published in 1950. Side note. Huh. Um, huh. The, uh, the only thing that it describes other than you know, it gives the additions and so forth. It says the years that it was spanned. And there's this one little paragraph. One valued lesson passed on by Moody is the importance of water rights and the profound challenges these can have on a community. That's the <laughs> only description of the book other than saying it's like an autobiographical account of his time of Really? Realism. Yeah. I think that's just hilarious. And whoever got on Wikipedia and wrote that really cared about that part of the book. <laughs> Which wow. and I don't I don't think that that's wrong. I mean, you know, Adam, you sure. rightly point that point out that, that that this is a key, you know, point of tension in the book and and in Western stories. Well, yeah. So that's not wrong, but that's also hilarious. I would, yeah, I would ne- I would never say that water rights is a thematic emphasis of the story. In fact, I would call it an excuse, a, a plot device. Yeah, yeah it's an objective story correlative, a practically yeah, a little structure <laughs> to the story so that he can talk about you know, the human relationship type stuff that's going on as a result. I was laughing because you get this book where 
and in practically every chapter or every other chapter, or whatever, this boy is learning some kind of lesson, sometimes even through a lecture from his father or his mother or her, or some hand wringing or something. And, and he, so he learns all these quote, you know, value values. And the thing that it says here is the one valued lesson is about water, right? It's, it's just about, only water book about like growing up and morals and all that kind of stuff. But the valued lesson is water rights. I, I just get I would never that. read that novel if that was on the back of the book. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. A book about water rights. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, of course, a Western book, and we really have not done a lot of Western books on this show. Have we done? What's the closest, what's the most Western book we've ever done on this show? I can't think of it. Uh, True Grit. You oh, yeah, True, True Grit. Grit, of course. Yeah, that'd be it. Um, I knew there was one. But, Adam, are you a Western? Have you read many Western fans? Heidi has admitted this. I love Westerns. In her character that she does not <laughs> read many. Can, can Heidi, can we talk Westerns for a second here if you need to leave? Absolutely. Please, <laughs> no. I want to learn. <laughs> Teach me. Uh, please correct the flaw in my character. <laughs> um. Well, so Adam, how about you try to make me love them? This can be your. This can be the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Adam, why should that's easy? Why should Heidi love westerns? Well, uh, the western is the the quintessential American literature form, and I would actually go further than that, and I would say that American literature is the western. Hmm. It's not that a western is an American literature but it's the other way around that everything about the american experience and the american artistic and literary experience is what makes a western great and what by by that i mean the founding of a civilization in in the midst of a wilderness the pushing back or pushing back of the darkness of wilderness with the borders of civilization the hardship that's involved in that the clash of cultures and races that are involved in that that is the American experience and all the implications there too, right? The, the, um, the vicissitudes of taking your ideas, your theological ideas, your, your family ideas, your civilization ideas, and planting them in a place where they may be unwelcome or they may be fragile or they may not uh, be able to persist and survive. That's what American experience is mm. since its very beginnings. And that's essentially what makes a Western a Western as well. Mm. And so, um, so every American, I would say every American work of literature, uh, to the degree that it's that it's American, is also a Western. Hmm. I just want to point out that the main reason that we had invited you on the show is because you're the kind of person who can use the word vicissitudes without thinking. <laughs> Sorry, that was no, awesome. That is a compliment. No, okay. That so you, you did say something I want to ask you though, because <clears throat> um, I agree with everything you're saying. I think you are um, right on, and we could just talk about Westerns for a long time, but you said that the Western is the something like the Western is the primary American literature form. So I'm very curious about your choice of the word form there. What do you think makes a form Western or what is it that defines the Western form? I mean, there are, there are certainly themes and stuff that are in play, but are you talking about something more than the themat, the thematic things that you were describing there when you talk about a Western form? No, I think I probably am guilty of using that word um, uh, imprecisely. I didn't mean the form in in the way um, like the form of the screenplay or the novel or the sonnet or the ballad or something like that. Um, but but in terms of the in terms of the stories that Americans tell that are rooted in their national experience, 
Um, I think there are there are structural elements certainly that partake of this Western idea. Mm. Protagonist goes out into wilderness, tries to make a life for himself, tries to establish things that are important to him intellectually and and otherwise, um, faces threats to those things and comes to some sort of understanding of himself or understanding of the human condition or resolution to his problem in the end. If that's a form, then I think that's kind of a quintessentially Western one. Where would you... Like, if you, what's your short list of Western stories? Because I think we can trace back. I mean, <clears throat> the Western stories is pretty easy to trace in American literature. I mean, you can go back to the leather stocking tales and the frontier tales of the early 1800s, if not earlier. But that, you know, as, as American literature was actually being published and became a real thing, that canon is, you can trace it back through the American canon of literature. The yeah. Penny Dreadfuls, the dime novels, you know, there's, there's the lowbrow and the highbrow novels. I mean, you even have Mark Twain is, is in the Western. The, you know, he often is oh, for sure. dabbling in there, yeah. if not outright in it. So what, where would you, what, what's kind of your canon or your Mount Rushmore of Western novels for people who want to have a better sense of what you're talking about here? We, this is, I'm sure this is the kind of thing that will get asked in a Q&A episode, but I think people might appreciate some, some, some context for well, me. Well, I think that's a really hard question and I was not prepared to answer it. So I'm just going to spin something off the top of my head. But um, <laughs> I think a really... Interesting comparison. <laughs> I think a really interesting comparison would be between um, Cooper, James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales, maybe the the you know one of the earliest examples of um, of a of a fictional account of of the man in the wilderness confronting all of the things that I was talking about. Side by side with the works of Twain, Huckleberry Finn in particular would be a really um, It'd be fun to have those two faces on the same Mount Rushmore, to use your terms. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because they take such, they're from two totally different kind of literary periods. You know, James Fenimore Cooper's kind of an American romantic, mm-hmm. and he's got the, the noble savage in the wilderness, um, you know, above the fray of civilization. And Mark Twain, from the more of a realistic period, uh, in terms of his style and interests, provides really a healthy contrast to it. But at the same time, both of those authors are confronting the same set of problems uh, related to the frontier in the wilderness. So I might put James Fenimore Cooper and Mark Twain on Mount Rushmore. Hmm. Do you, are you into the, uh, well, let me ask you this. If you love Westerns, you, I'm sure you, you know, there's the Zangres and the Louis Lamours and, and all that stuff. Right. Do, do you think that um, the more quote genre elements of some of those books um, set them aside from the traditional Western that you're kind of just talking about, or is it sort of in some ways a fulfill is the fact that it became this sort of popular genre type of, of thing, a fulfillment of the things that you're saying about it's sort of, I, 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 that's a rude question. I would call it the simplified, uh, popular consumption version of some of the same themes. It's nuanced in, in the leather stocking tales and it's nuanced in Twain. It's not nuanced in Louis L'Amour. Very, it's very similar themes, but uh, they're drawn in very bold, stark colors with cardboard characters who are ex- who always say and do the things you expect them to say and do, so that the the familiar story plays out the way you're the way you're hoping it will. And so, I, you know, I don't I don't think that's necessarily a a criticism. It just um, puts the traditional, the Louis L'Amour, or to a lesser extent, the Zane Grey novel in in a slightly separate subcategory. Mm. Do you, are you, when you, I mean, is that a criticism? <laughs> Not at all. I love them. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's well, nothing like a there's nothing like a shootout at the OK Corral at Western <laughs> while away a Saturday afternoon. Okay, so <laughs> I have a follow-up question on this. Yeah. The way Adam and and I want your thoughts too, David, because I know you're a huge fan of genre fiction and we've talked a lot about it on the show. Um, what you described, Adam, um, about the kind of the the tone, the archetypes, um, the story arc and structuring, the characterization, uh, and the and the action and motivation in a Western story sounds very much like epic. That's what you like. You use a lot of the the founding, almost like empire building. Although this is America, um, you know. So yes, empire building. Yes, the the, yeah. uh, the founding of a society by characters who are discovering a land, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's a very epic theme, but it's also there's also this sense of quest in it, almost like a King Arthur kind of tale, like the tales of the knights, the round table going out on this quest and and meeting these characters along the way, the beautiful woman, the seductress, the maiden, the um overcoming a monster, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of the the combination of these those the idea of epic and then quest narratives in a traditional American setting is that a fair way to describe kind of some of the literary characteristics of a western yeah, I think so I mean I certainly think the the uh, features of an epic like the like Virgil's Aeneid, for example um, certainly ring true in the American context because uh, from the you know from day one in in um, 1603 you know that the Europeans are trying to to found a country mm. and you know for various reasons but the as we look back on that what we see them involved in is a very Aeneid like uh, a quest as you put it or maybe a better way to put it is an Aeneid like destiny huh manifest to, destiny to found the great to found the great Rome of the 19th and 20th centuries. So yeah, I think that's in our, in our experience as a, as a culture and a civilization since then has been to continually do it as the frontier, you know, moves to the West. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that this novelist take takes place in Colorado. Um, because in many Western stories, Colorado is, I mean, kind of the beginning of the true uh-huh. West. Um, you know, the, there's you, when you think of cowboy stories, you think of, you know, um, a lonesome dove type thing where it's Texas, right. And you're driving the cowboy, you're driving them up the cattle up to the mountains, up into Montana. Um, you think of the, um, the wars between the native Americans and the soldiers in New Mexico and Arizona and the stories of Geronimo and, and then even the gold rush stuff in Oregon and California and stuff. Cal- Colorado was often sort of, the beginning, uh, you know, it's the beginning of the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of the West, in the mm-hmm. in in a in the sort of archetypal story, and you even get um, stories like um, oh, what is it? What is it? Um, the one the Pulitzer Prize in Martin Kaufman loves these books. I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. The Way West and A.B. Guthrie. A.B. Guthrie. Have you ever read okay. um, Big Sky or The Way West, Adam? I haven't. No. So one of those two, I think the big sky won the Pulitzer prize in the forties. Um, but he wrote these stories about these, you know, that start, the first book starts with, you know, they're kind of fur trapper type stories and then they become Western stories. Um, but it's about crossing over the Rocky mountains. Um, and it, 
and there's in some ways they're kind of like stories of Daniel Boone finally crossing over, you know, the Appalachians, the Smoky Mountains, uh. and entering into Kentucky. You know, crossing out of the, the colonies, the civilization of the colonies into the wilderness of of the what was the West then. And so it strikes me that this story takes place. This is a long way of saying it that the story takes place at the beginning of the West, where this sort of distinction between what's civilized to the East and what's truly wild to the West is still, there's still this question of, of the vague danger to the West. And we even get that, the question of, um, or the fear of the mountain lion who killed the man up in the mountains, right? Is this, is uh-huh. the, the mountain lion going to come down? So on one side is the civilization that their mother is clinging to. And on the other is the dangers of the, the kind of American wilderness, which is on the other side that sort of is, they're kind of stuck in between the two of those and trying to carve a life out of, out, kind of trying to carve a life in that, in that, that um sort of plain that that gray area in between those two places and i find that really fascinating because it's not true wilderness you know right. in sort of the archetypal sense but it's also not the civilization and it's kind of a no man's land that he's that he's mm-hmm. and in a way his father's sickness seems to play up that no man's landness is that what do you think of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what you're describing is the the idea of the frontier as as not as a as an outpost in the midst of a wilderness, but as a as a spot on the line between civilization mm-hmm. and and wilderness. I mean, that's kind of what frontier means. And I think the the most compelling stories uh, in the American tradition or the the Western tradition have to do with with uh, people on that line who are, as you mm-hmm. say. Uh, looking back to the safety of civilization and then also looking forward to the promise or the opportunity or the danger or the risk of the wilderness. And so, uh, yeah, the best, the best stories happen in the, in the border between them, I think. That that's so important when you said there too that there is the danger and the risk, but also the opportunity. That's like the American story, right? Like always to the West is the potential that everything could go terribly wrong, but also, you know, it's Charles Ingalls, right? We have to keep moving. We have because there might be better opportunity over there. And so, the fact that yeah. it's both it, it it's both potentially deeply dangerous and and destructive, but also that there's opportunity there is right. such a rich. Um, it, there's so much that can be used there and played with as for a storyteller. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right, but and I do think it's worth mentioning here that this is a story about a family that is trying to plant roots, right? They're not necessarily driven west. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and as, as in a sense of discovery, they're not pioneers, right? They're builders. They, they have, they've left their home because um, he is... Yeah, they have to, yeah. Right, and so they want to go, they, they want to go west in order to start a new life, in order to build it. Um, mm. So in that sense, it's not the, the true kind of Western, I, I'm driven to go West. I'm panning for gold. I'm, I, I can't put down roots because I'm constantly going into the wilderness, mm-hmm. right? They're on that output, as you pointed out, Dave, this no man's land, this this uh, liminal space between the the life of the East and the life of the West, mm-hmm. um, which fits with a childhood narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're after healing more than they are opportunity, it seems like. Right, and relationship and putting, yeah, growth. Mm-hmm. I I love that you said that that's like it, that fits the childhood narrative. Can you talk more about mm-hmm. which, about that? Yeah, that this this is the story we talked about whether or not it's coming of age novel. I would say that this is uh, more of a 
it, multiple genres are, are, are weaving into this story. It's not necessarily true Western. It's not necessarily that true coming of age. It's not an orphan story. This is, uh, and it's a real life, the life of a child in a happy home, but in a troubled land, right? In which, the, which darkness is closing in clearly in some ways, but he still has, he's, he's well-parented, um, so he's he's not kind of going into this archetypal wilderness darkness that represented by the West, um, but he is also he he's also not quite completely safe and secure the way he would be in this this land that might be represented by the East. He's there hmm. growing up. This is the story of how he is in a liminal space between early childhood and his and becoming a young man, and all of the formative threads that weave into that. Hmm. Um, from the land and from the relationships and from the work that he does and from horses, which are clearly a very big part of his life. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that in some ways his father's illness is sort of preserving the liminal nature Mm -hmm. of the space. Because if it gets worse, then it's no longer the, he's kind of being forced. He gets pushed into growing up in certain ways, right? Between, and, and then, you know, but if he had not gotten sick, they would have been, in the old place still. Right. And that, that's right. sort of the, the thing that, that creates and, and then I guess also preserves the liminal nature of that. Also another good word, by the way. You guys are bringing the, vo- bringing the vocab this episode. Vocabulary. Bringing the vocab. <laughs> hey, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, to, I want to talk about the parents. Well, and the mm-hmm. mother in particular. What do you, how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to think about her? I was having a hard time figuring out if he's, like he seems to respect her, but I couldn't help but sort of be annoyed by be annoyed by her. And I don't know if that's just because. Um, well, I don't know if that's just you know maybe it's a character flaw in me. <laughs> <laughs> but but her her like the way she seems to have such a disregard for the people there. Um, she sort of seems to fear their way of life, even the overalls thing. You know, she doesn't seem to be able to adapt. Mm-hmm. She doesn't appreciate the way that she's being forced to adapt. I don't mean that as like this makes her a bad person, but it. Right. it I, but I couldn't tell. Is this? Are we supposed to view that as sort of enriching her character, as sort of showing a flaw in her? Or I don't mean. And I don't mean that I was that I'm criticizing her for right. that. That's a right. very human response. Right. But I, I I was having a hard time identifying this time reading it through how exactly I'm supposed to feel about her. So I was curious how you both feel about her. Do you, Adam, I'll turn to you first. What, what are your thoughts about, the, about Ralph Moody's mother in this book about Molly? Well, she's, a, uh, she's probably uh, representative for him, for Ralph, of the civilization that they're trying to plant uh, mm-hmm. in terms of her ideas and in terms of her, um, what she she represents the the rules and the customs and the expectations of the civilization that, that, that lies behind them in a sense, as they stand facing an unknown land and an unknown future. She's kind of the, in some ways, the foundation that they're standing on or the the thing they're tied to in the, in the back. Hmm. And, and so for that reason, she makes him wear his Buster Brown suit to school because no son of mine is going to go to school in overalls. Right. Or, or, um, something like that but on the other hand well i guess maybe the the thing to say first is that chafes young ralph a little bit Mm -hmm. 
because he's as a boy, uh, he, you know, he wants to be a little freer and wants to explore the this new situation a little bit. And and even she's even she even crosses his father, and and uh, you know, he I think his father might have checked off on wearing overalls to school if mother hadn't been so firm about it. <laughs> on the other hand, though, when she faces um, uh, adversity and and father realizes that this is too much and he turns to her early on and says, I'm sorry, this isn't what we expected. We'll go home. She clenches her teeth and says, no, we won't. We're going to make this work. And so she's got that kind of strength that is going to carry them through. And I expect, though... We shouldn't give anything away about the you know future chapters. I expect that that strength combined with father's growing weakness is going to prove to be very important. So I don't know how much I like her, but um, she's certainly playing a central role in in the story. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the distinction that you made. Uh, I don't know if you made it directly, but it, <clears throat> that was at least implied between the civilization that they are trying to establish, which speaks to what Heidi was saying. And the civilization that they left behind. Because when you first said it, I thought you were going to say she represents the civilization that she left, that they left behind. And she does. She's carrying forward what they left behind. But I really love that point that you made that it's a civilization that they're trying to establish and she represents the order of that civilization. I think that's a fantastic point. Yeah. And I would agree that that they're definitely trying to establish something. They're not just trying to fit in, but they're trying to to make a a moody place in this. Mm -hmm wilderness mm-hmm. Heidi let's t- let me turn to you then um so how do you feel about as as a mother <laughs> who lives in Colorado what's right. your thoughts I mean- <laughs> <laughs> yes um so I you know it's so interesting uh, because my I, I as you know David and Adam probably doesn't know this maybe yet about me but I do tend to read characters very psychologically because my back that's my professional background um, so I, what I see in this woman is a woman who is grieving. This is, this is what I'm, I'm seeing in her. She is left behind everything. She knows the ground has literally shifted beneath her and she is trying to orient herself to a new culture. Um, and she's constantly aware of what she's lost. I'm thinking of what I would be like if I moved my children to a rural place and I, and I want them to be a certain type of person. Right? I want them to be a certain type of well-read, well-mannered, well-dressed people. That actually really does matter to me. And then if they are um, kind of in, in, in this alien land um, in which it would feel maybe like the stars in their courses are fighting against me, my children are going to be strangers to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be more a part of this land than what we have left behind. Um, uh, then I, I think that's 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 a process of of grief that she's going to, and her children are seeing it unfold before them in the kind of control that she takes over them, mm-hmm. um, which is in many ways unhealthy but utterly human, as you pointed out, Adam. I see her as a very humanized character, whereas I see Father as a an, an idealized character. Mm, that's interesting. Do you agree with that? Adam? Yeah, I think so. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the author uh, putting this memoir together is on the, on the one hand, simply describing what he remembers about his mother and recalling yeah. what she was like and recording his memories and then fitting them into a, a narrative that, mm-hmm. that he wants to tell. And even the elements of characterization come 
primarily from his recollection. But Heidi, I like your comment that that what he's remembering is a real person, right. a real woman, a real mother in a, a very human situation. And so the way she acted that he just simply recorded and fit into his into his narrative had its own sources in human reality. And that process of grieving, given her situation, I'm sure was going on. That's that that's insightful. Hmm. Do you do you sense that same grieving in the father? Heidi, I'll turn to you first and then I want to hear about fatherhood from Adam. <laughs> right. Um, I don't see it as much. I see uh a and and you may speak to that from a very different perspective as men and I'm I'd I'd like to hear that. Um like I said, I think that father is idealized in a way that mother is not in the story. Uh the um the recollections that he's making about his father are more about his that that I so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop in the middle of my sentence and I'm gonna say something. I love Adam, I really loved that you pointed out the first sentence of the book with, I never really knew my father until, and it made me think right away of um, Telemachus in book one of the Odyssey, when he Mm -hmm. says, does any man really know his father? Mm -hmm. And that line just, you know, when, when my son read that for the first time, he read book one of the Odyssey, he said he was going to read the whole thing, he read two books, and then he's like, moved on to, I don't know, Harry Potter or something. But that was the one, yes, (laughs) it was the one thing that he said, he was sitting out loud, that he read out loud to me. He said, mom, Telemachus says, no one really knows his, no man really knows his father. Do you think that's true? And I think that urge that you described it as, Adam, for a man to know his father is something a woman doesn't understand. Um. But it is hmm. core, like fundamental. Yeah. And this... Yeah, this is what my talk's about. <laughs> yes, the, this boy's wrestling through that has produced, I think, his, his focus so much on how his father has built relationship with him and how he survived that I'm not sure he's really capturing the same things in his father in terms of his humanity that he is in his mother, which I find really interesting. Hmm. So I'm not seeing it as much, but I'd li- I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about that. I think I agree. If I understand what you're saying, I, that he idealizes his father a little bit. There, there is, um, in a sense, this is a story about what he learned from his father about yes. being a, about being a man. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, his father is um, is lawgiver and compelling lawgiver and in in such a way that he you know he elicits love from his son but it's but it's um he's a pattern his father is a pattern or an ideal or a, a blueprint of some kind and uh i think you're right i, I would agree hmm. that's so that's the word lawgiver there is fascinating because mm-hmm. when i'm thinking about going back to what heidi said well actually now that i now that i can't i can't remember who said it um so whoever said it, take credit. They're talking about, the, I think it was you, Adam, taking about the idea of she is representative of the things that they're trying to establish in their yeah, still culture. That was Adam. Okay, so congrats, yeah. Adam. Good job. Um, <laughs> but but um, to a, you know a civilization or a culture or whatever it is, you know, or a home, you know, a home is a, is is about patterns, right? Like the well ordered home is about the patterns that are being offered, you know, to the children in some ways. Um, that's why Chrysostom calls homes little churches. Right. Um, and, and so I think that it's, it's fascinating that you, she's representing some sense of order 
but he's also representing the sense of lawgiver. So they're both, it's almost like a Platonic thing here going on when he talks about, when Plato talks about civilization, like, or about, I guess you call it what a, not civilization, but what does he call it in the Republic? Different conversation for a different day. Um, right. So if the father represents the lawgiver and the mother, so what, what word would you use for the part that she represents if he represents, if he's the lawgiver, what is she? Well, that's interesting. Like in what of what is what part? Uh, I'll talk for a second to let you think. What part of the uh, pretend I'm talking? What part of the um, the order, the structure, the civilization, the culture? Need more adjectives to give you more time to think. Does it? Um, does she stand in for? Does she represent? Well, I, I think I, I think I might have used the word foundation before, or mooring, mm. or mm. or backdrop, or um, something that you're that you're tied to in a, in a way of support. And, uh, she's the, she's the, um, the dependable, reliable, repeatable, assumed context for everything, but uh, in front of which as a backdrop in front of which he can relate to his father and receive instruction on how to move forward. I think that would probably be a fair way of describing how I see it. Sure. I agree with that. And I think, and she's also, um, like represents kind of an archive. She's a keeper of the of the memory of mm-hmm. their past um, and what what it is that their family values um, that is different from what the society around them, which is now an, an, an alien place, a different place that they have to adapt to. The children have to adapt to it. Um, that's the that's the landscape in which they're going to grow up. Right? They're almost immigrants in a sense. Whereas the mother. She, she, she is who she is, right? So she's going to adapt to the place, but she also has, she is a keeper of the memory of the past as well. And what, what it was like to live in the East and the kind of society they lived in there. Um, And I also think that she is just like a mother is to every young man. And I'm sure this is true in both of your families. It's certainly true in mine. Uh, As my son comes of age, I am the one he pushes against. Oh yeah. Right. So this is, that's definitely true here. She is, he's going to figure out who he is by putting himself in opposition to her. No matter how much he loves her, that is a normal part of a boy becoming a man. And that is the role, the role that the mother takes in every family. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and it becomes then the, 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 the negotiation in each individual relationship of how that turns out. And that's mm-hmm. very clearly here in this book. Yeah. Even with an eight-year-old. I yep. mean, and it very well may be that that in looking back in his own history, he telescopes some things uh, for the sake of narrative. But mm-hmm. I think that's a, I think you're right that that um, that relationship is has got the features of reality. Mm-hmm. I like that you use the word. I think you even said guardian, right, Heidi? Uh, yeah, maybe preserver or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Because that because that does take me back to the you know Plato's idea of the members of the classes in a city. Right. And what is that? The Republic. Because the, he talks about the guardians. Uh-huh. And then there's the auxiliaries and the producers. And in some ways, it seems like maybe maybe the um, they each represent one of the... I mean, I'm not saying that he's making a platonic. Sure. <laughs> but maybe right. Plato no. was on right. to something is what I'm saying. Well, he, Plato was <laughs> yeah, definitely right. on to a lot of things. <laughs> and there was a, I mean, a very overt masculinity in the way that Plato ordered his city. Um, whereas here in this story, this is, I think, more consistent with reality. 
in the sense that a mother is actually pretty important to the formation of a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and this, this is a description of um, a healthy family. Right. As, as, as David, you said in, in your talk, it's only, uh, what, what did you say? It's only dysfunctional in a minor way. Like, um, Even when I was moderately yes. dysfunctional? Moderately dysfunctional. <laughs> when I was describing yes. my own family? Yes. That was how you described your own family. And that's how I'm sure we all could describe our own, um, where we, how we grew up or how we parented. Like this, that, that things are in place here in this family that make a human being uh, in, in a healthy way. Hmm. I'm so fascinated by this idea of of the mother being about preserving something. Mm. I just, I, and then also this idea of him trying to get to know his father, mm. because I talk about this in my talk. I'm just going to give away my talk, I guess, but I'll tell you that, you know, Adam hasn't, hasn't heard me talk about this before, but one of the things I think that the telemachy is about in the Odyssey, you know, they talk, Eva Brand talks about how the telemachy is, is when Odysseus learns what it means to be Odysseus's son. Mm-hmm. And that until he was able to learn what it meant to be Odysseus' son, he had to go to Menelaus and Nestor and Helen to hear the stories of Odysseus so that he would know what it meant to be Odysseus' son. And by knowing, and, and until he knew what that meant, he couldn't take the right action. Not, and not only that, he probably may not have, my theory is he wouldn't have recognized Odysseus when he came. Because intellectually, he knew, I am Odysseus' son. But he hadn't had the years with Odysseus to know what that meant. Right. And, I, you know, that is. So, that is such a, um, th- th- that is such an important part of any person's life. You know, what does it mean to be this mother's daughter or son? To be this right. father's son or daughter? And I think that in this book, we are really seeing this eight-year-old boy learn what it means to be the child to Molly Moody. You know, right. she where she is saying these are the things that matter to me. These are the things that I'm preserving, and the, mm. the things that I'm going to insist of you in order to preserve those within our within our little culture, within our little home. And he's also learning what it means to be Mr. Moody's, you know, with Charlie, right? Charlie Moody's son to be, right. you know, what are the lessons that are being passed on, but also what are the things that are expected of me in the role of this man's son? What is, right. what is going to be expected of me, not just now, but in the future? Um, and there's, man, there's a lot going on in, in those themes that that's a, mm-hmm. You know, those, those are, it's both challenging and encouraging at the same time, I think, as a father and as a son, and also for the young boy in the story. Like, it's both, he's, it, it, it moors him, but it also is a challenge, I think. Right. To, to right. make something of himself within, those, within that framework. Right. Which, to go back to the idea of the coming-of-age genre, is, um, you know, this is a, a coming-of-age that... This is in many ways a gentle coming of age story. Like I, I know that there's trouble and hardship in it, but it isn't the orphan being thrown out on the street um, that that has nobody, no society, no family to teach them. This this is a young man who yeah, it's is not Huckleberry Finn. Exactly, right. he right. doesn't have to find himself through great obstacles um, that that are abnormal to the human experience. Um, and and I think that's what gives this narrative, to use Adam's words, which I loved, a sense of safety, mm-hmm. a sense well, of anchoring and orienting rather than disruption. 
mm-hmm. it strikes me that perhaps the challenge that he has faced as he's coming of age here is to to come of it, it, it the stakes are that he is he or is he not going to come of age according to the moorings and standards and framework that's provided for him as opposed to is he where is he finding a framework to come of age right and so the question right. the, the challenge is does he live up to or does is he able to sort of function properly within that mooring Right. And it's absolutely appropriate that a young eight-year-old boy who is in this stage, whose life has been disrupted by a move, who's beginning a new life, whose mother is in a grieving process and probably being a bit controlling of him in a way that might step out of bounds, right? All of these things, it is absolutely appropriate that such a young man would idealize his father. So it's Mm -hmm. not a criticism of the novel to say that. Mm -hmm. It is a, it's, it's a righteous thing that a young boy under these circumstances would say, I want to be just like my dad. Mm-hmm. Mm. Adam, there's something on the tip of your tongue. I sense it through the inter- interweb. No, I just, I really <laughs> like the, the comparison with, um, with the kind of the, the uh, platonic form is probably the wrong <laughs> phrase in, in a reference to Homer, but the, um, the fact that you talk about the telemachy there and the, the relationship between Telemachus and Odysseus. I mean, I think there's, that's a universal question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of what does it mean to be my father's son and how will I go about doing it? And I like that, that context, that universal context that you can put then the conversations between father and young Ralph in. It makes them something a little bit more than just a list of moral dicta that Ralph remembers from his childhood and tries to paint in his in as compelling a way as possible. Hmm. And, you know, I think the, the story about how my dad was a dispenser of great moral dicta is, is fine, mm-hmm. but, um, but seeing it in that universal context of um, that epic context, I think is a little bit more compelling to, you know, to an older reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I also think that the, that the writer of this story was an adult and he actually had a sense of the universal appeal of that of that father son relationship, and I think that's probably yeah, why he yeah. began the novel with "I never knew my father really well." I wouldn't be surprised if that was a self conscious nod to the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't that would not to find out that to find that out wouldn't surprise me at all. There is something also very Penelopean. <laughs> can I? That sounds yes. Can I coin we that? Just adjective to that. Yeah, there's something very much like Penelope. Just made adjective a verb, Heidi. <laughs> And the circle continues. <laughs> so we have, we have, I have officially um, ruined whatever you guys brought to the table with your vocabulary. Um, <laughs> but there is something very much like Penelope about Molly in, in the sense that she, you know, Penelope's commitment, her perseverance is one of the things that preserves the home, right? And not only that, it preserves um, Telemachus's chances to, to, to rule over the home later, to have any sense of, um, you know, by not giving in or giving up on Odysseus or whatever, that's what allows Telemachus to have some sort, some sort of framework um, to grow up in, such such as it was with the suitors there. But it would have been even worse if she had not given up, and if she had given up. And so, I, there's definitely something very much like Penelope in Molly. I think. Uh-huh. Hmm. Haven't hmm. thought about that before, really, but. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting because there's that point in what is it, book one of the Odyssey, where she's trying to boss him around and tell him, 
you know, go do something or whatever, or trying to give him advice. I don't, I can't remember exactly what it is. Yeah. And tell him he says, "Go upstairs with your slave." And, and he sends the, her to a room. <laughs> yeah. Does d- go do your women's work, and it's kind of like a, it's a super disrespectful line, but also at the same time, it's a very sort of. I think what's going on there is just meant to be a very human thing, where you have this kid who has never had any control over anything. He's been slow to grow up maturity wise, and he's been controlled by the you know by the women in a culture where he would not have even spent any time with women much after the age of six and he's been Mm -hmm. controlled by the suitors and all this kind of stuff and so it's him trying to carve out this sense of um identity and and place and in his own home and and she goes upstairs and she said you know she has the sort of moment that that calls to mind mary when jesus is in the temple Mm. and and she kind of has this moment where she's she's struck by she's not offended by it you know, that's the thing. She doesn't get angry. She, right. she, she, goes she up, says she is in wonder. She responds yeah. in wonder. Yeah. And I think she even goes and prays for him or something like that. She mm-hmm. lights a candle or something. Um, and she goes upstairs and she actually does what he asks. And she, she kind of honors the request that he's making, even if he's going about it the wrong way, because she recognizes this search for identity and for maturity and for manhood that he's after. And it seems like that's the moment where her perspective changes. And it seems like in some ways throughout these first six chapters, that's the same sort of um, search that Ralph is after, but also the same, the same way that her, his mother's relationship with him is evolving where Mm -hmm. she sort of slowly going to have to recognize moments when he is trying to carve out identity and how to, and, and determining how do I respond to them? There's even the moment where he thinks he's going to get a whooping and she just sends him to the corner and waits for the father to come home and he has to stand in the corner forever. And it seems like when the father says, Hey, did you lick him back? (laughs) No, no, no. It's when he, no, the one I'm thinking of is when, um, Oh, I don't think that is the one I was thinking of. I thought was when he goes and tries to haul the ties with the horse and he tells his mom that he had been given permission and when his father gets home, he doesn't actually give him a whoop and he gives him a lecture about your, about a man's character. Mm-hmm. And so right. she makes him go stand in the qu- corner because, and then he comes home and gives the lecture. <clears throat> and um, I wonder if, you know, I, I've always wondered if the thing for Telemachus is, Telemachus is that he never had that lecture part. There, was a, <laughs> you know, there wasn't the person who could come and tell him, you know, your character matters other than the women. <laughs> and well, there's a whole, there's a lot of cultural stuff going on there, but there wasn't that relationship. And so she, Molly is trying to figure out how do I respond to my child trying to become a man? And I, I, I'm not a mom, (laughs) um, but I have a wife and I've been, I have, I had a mom and I've heard from a lot of moms and it seems like that's a pretty universal question of how do I respond as a mother to my, to my son trying to become a man? Because sometimes the aspiration to become a man is whether purposefully or not going to hurt the mother. Every time, every time. Absolutely. That's a feature of life in this world. That's right. And that's, I guess, why even Mary in the temple, when Jesus is, he is acting independently, he's taking agency and he's beginning his ministry in some ways. She's, you know, it seems as if she, you know, she looks at him in wonder to borrow from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. But it's, it doesn't seem like it's not painful for her in some ways, no. even when right. Jesus creates his own independence from her. Right. Well, then that doesn't scripture speak to that. So she carries a sword in her heart. That's the mm-hmm. phrase. That's a very big, big phrase in term in, in the Bible in which emotions are fairly understated in terms of the characters, right? Mary carries a sword in her heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a journey of motherhood that young men don't actually need to be aware of, but it's there. And I think he is 
I, I like the way he portrays his mom here. You could tell his exasperation, his pushing against her boundaries, but also there is an, a, an honoring of her and a full disclosure of her courage and her strength in remaining by her husband's side mm. and, and, and doing what needs to be done to build a life. And in in young Ralph's defense, that that honor is given by by grown up Ralph, yeah. right? Who's looking yes. back, describing his mother. Because I think you're right, Heidi. Um, at, it's hard to to have that kind of sensitivity and perspective uh, as a young boy when you're right in the middle of things. Sure. You know, it. I I really like the scene that I mentioned there. And as I'm thinking about it, and as we're talking, it, he he comes in. He does lie to her, right? Mm-hmm. Um. But it seems like in that moment, she is more than angry. She's hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that. But then she, and so she sends him to the corner. She does it in other scenes. She'd given him a whooping, right? Right. <laughs> Multiple yeah. times. And she talks, he talked about how getting a whooping from her with, with, with the father's slipper was just as bad as getting punched by the, <laughs> by the boys at school. So she was capable of uh, inflicting um, pain. Uh, yep. But in that moment, she doesn't, overreact. She doesn't blow up. She's hurt mm-hmm. because he lies to her, but it seems like she also is recognizing the struggle that the trials that he is going through in trying to carve out identity within this place, even though he's only eight years old. He's trying to right. create a name for himself. He's trying to figure out who am I in this place. And so then she lets the father come home and talk to him and it leads to the lecture. And you know, there's a there's a wisdom, I suppose, you know, in a in a discernment in the way that she responds differently there. And it makes that scene stand out. Um in, in a lot of ways, because there's the, both the father and the mother respond much more calmly than they had earlier, mm-hmm. but, which is which is fascinating to me. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've been going for a while. Let's let's go. To any final thoughts, Adam? You got any final thoughts you want to offer before we? Uh, uh, no, I'm looking forward to the next chunk. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get back to reading. Heidi, you? No, I wanted to talk. All, we hit all the things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, that's a shame. I don't. Know. When has that ever happened? <laughs> Um, so next week we are going to discuss chapters seven through 10, right? Yep. Seven through 10. Um, I think it, these think there's a couple longer chapters than we're in here. So, um, next week is the show will go up on April 12th. Well, this one, the today will go up April 5th and then the next one will go up April 12th. So, um, be reading chapters seven through 10 and as always join the conversation. If you have uh, any comments or questions you want to, you want to ask or discuss or anything like that, you can do that over on the close reads podcast, uh, conversation group on Facebook. We're also on Instagram and Twitter as well. If you need to get in touch with us by email, you can email us at close reads pods, close reads podcasts at gmail.com. Adam, Heidi, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, David. Yeah, looking great. forward to the next one. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Hey, Adam, what's going on at uh, the Center for Lit that you want to that you want to tell us about? Oh, if you're interested in podcasts like these, we've got one of our own called Bibliophiles. It's a good one. And, uh, it's good. I love about, it. Talking about books uh, among the Center for Lit crew, having a great time. So come and uh, come and join us. Bibliophiles on iTunes. Uh, Emily tells me it's on Stitcher, whatever that is, and you can also get it on <laughs> our website at centerforlit.com. Awesome. Awesome. Heidi, what are you working on these days? Oh, just writing stuff. I'm doing a webinar for Cersei coming up here. We've got the Kindred Conference coming up next weekend in Colorado Springs on April 13th. We're talking about courage, which is going to be great. Um, Your mom's going to be there probably talking about the courage it took to let you boys grow into men. Um, (laughs) Before we go, I have to tell a story about that, by the way. Okay. So... 
well, sort of about that. So keep no, going, keep going. Please, you, just, no. you just reminded me of something. No, I want to add, that's a great transition. <laughs> please tell us the story. <laughs> okay. So the beginning of the book, when they arrive, you know how they arrive at the ranch house and it's not what they expect. And she's, and he says, all right, we're turning around. And, and well, he says that the father does. And then the mother says, no, no, we're staying. We've, we've, we've decided we're going to be here. We have to trust God. Um, so that scene reminded me of my childhood because when I was eight, I went, whoa. I was eight years old. Um, <laughs> it's a formative year. <laughs> I was eight years old. We moved from Wisconsin to, I think, to Boise, Idaho. Boise is surrounded on one side by the foothills of the Rocky Mountains and on the other by desert, like leading into California, Nevada, Utah, all that. And we had someone had arranged for us to have a rental house that we were going to live in for a while. My dad was going to help work at the school that had just started and, um, you know, it, we all our family was back east. <laughs> all our family was back in Wisconsin and in Canada. So we were there. You know, it was a leap of faith for sure. So I remember driving all the way across the country, and we're in the station wagon, and my dad's got the U-Haul, and um, it took us several days. And as you get further west, it's more and more desert, and there's mountains. And as a kid who loved cowboys, I thought it was all this was great, right? We stopped at all these Western stores in in Montana, and and then it gets to the desert, and you actually see cowboys and all this kind of stuff. So. You know, it's very romantic for an eight-year-old kid, but I remember this sort of vague sense of doom coming over my mom <laughs> as we were going further and further west. And then we get to the house, and so I, I highly doubt this house is still standing there because it probably was bulldozed for the. <laughs> but the this house backed up onto a highway, um, oh. a very small backyard, um, and it was not in good shape, and the backyard was completely brown, like desert, desert brown, because nothing grew and and it was this everything was brown it was this it was definitely it was not what she expected so we get there and we pull up and i remember her looking i think i was you know i was eight so i was old enough to at least recognize that it wasn't what she wanted and i remember her kind of gritting her teeth when it described the way she kind of set her jaw in the book that's how Uh i remember my mom's kind of setting her jaw and i remember my dad being like you know, he didn't say too much in front of us, but sort of having this apologetic sort of, this is not what I thought it was going to be sort of moment. And uh, we, we lived there for a couple of years and then we ended up being able to buy a house. But I remember my mom gritting her teeth and then basically just saying, well, let's make, let's make a home of it, you know, and then spending a couple of years doing that. Mm-hmm. So that moment for me, it was very, it brought back a lot of memories of, of that. And huh. I think there's probably a lot of women out there who are listening, who have been through, you don't have to have been like moving West because in a cowboy story to understand that sort of universal experience of things not being what you thought they were going to be and yeah. then sort of grit your teeth and make something of it, like make a little culture out of whatever, wherever you are, you know? And uh-huh. um, I think that's the kind of thing for, for moms and dads who are out there. I think that kids recognize that they learn that. And those are very, you know, I've always remembered their response to that, my huh. moms in particular, and that oh, sort of steadfastness. And I think of that sometimes. And of course yeah. I think of it when it's in a book like this, but, it's pretty even you know I don't I don't know how moved I was at the time I think I uh-huh. recognized it and now looking back it stuck with me enough to, for it to be moving. Um, That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I should have told that earlier. It just occurred to me when you said that. <laughs> well, That's anyway, <clears throat> yeah. So I say that partly to give some honor to my mom, but also I think mm-hmm. that for other moms and dads who have been through something like that, those kind of moments I think do stick with kids and and are we remember them later. So I'm sure you guys yeah. have similar experiences, if not, Absolutely. You know, maybe not quite as direct, but mm-hmm. yeah, we do. 
All right. Well, I guess that's it. Unless you guys want to add to that. If you want to pile onto the story that I just told out of order. No. <laughs> I thought it was the perfect spot for that story. Oh. Yeah, that's great. That's well, a great thanks. way to close the show. All right. Well, then let's do that. So for, <laughs> for Heidi White, for Adam Andrews, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week and happy reading.